The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Boy, that's a scorecard on Wall Street. The grade slipped right there into the close. Session lows. Winners stay late, though. Welcome to Closing the Overtime. I'm John Ford, back with Morgan Brennan on set here. Coming up this hour, we're parsing through the Fed. We will talk to former Council of Economic Advisors Chair Jason Furman and Evercore ISI Vice Chair Krishna Guha for their first reaction to Chair Powell's comments. Plus, big-name earnings are coming your way at this hour. We've got another Fed, FedEx. Also, KB Home will bring you the numbers and analyst reaction to both of those names. But first, let's get to the market reaction to the Fed. Stocks finishing at the lows of the day, selling off during Chair Powell's news conference. Megacap Tech getting particularly hard hit. Alphabet, Apple, Meta, and NVIDIA among the worst performers. Joining us now, BD8 Capital's Barb Duran and Jeffrey's chief market strategist, David Zervos, our own Michael Santoli with us as well. Um, Barb, my, my takeaway from the, the Fed today was no really higher for longer. And I wonder if you think equity prices and bond yields, I mean, doing what they did, though, uh, you know, a lot of this, if they yet adequately reflect that. Hmm. Yeah, Barb, Who are you directing Barbara? that to, John? Myself or Barb? I, I was asking Barb. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I think this moment they're more than reflecting it because, you know, what I heard was actually very positive. You know, Powell talked about the strength in the economy, you know, the strength in consumer spending. They raised their, uh, doubled their GDP for this year and raised it for next year at the same time saying it, the trend of inflation looks down. Now, strong GDP is good for earnings, which is good for the stock market. I think the market, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised at the reaction because I think it's been clear for a while that higher for longer is going to be be the mantra. And what I also heard the Fed say today was maybe one more interest rate cut. So the Fed is, is pretty much done. And the fact that they talked about fewer cuts next year just means to me that they're not likely to overshoot. At least that's what they think right now. So mm. I interpret it very differently than the market is right now. Yeah, maybe one more hike. David, is the market, though, now pricing in no hikes, continuing growth and no major impact from strikes, for example? I don't think so, John. And in fact, you know, in the, re in the recent weeks, it's uh, it's come off a little bit. But the amount of rate cuts that were priced in to the market a few weeks ago were still almost about 100, if not more. If you looked at the futures market between December uh, 2023 and December 2024, the inversion in the uh, SOFR curve or the, what was used to be the LIBOR curve. So I, I think it's um, it's actually I'm, I'm kind of going the other way. I think the Fed was particularly hawkish today. I think the move to take 50 basis points out of their forecasts for next year of rate cuts and move it from 75 of cuts to just 25 of cuts or so uh, is actually a pretty significant move and really, uh, I think, quite a change by the committee members in their outlook for growth in particular, in unemployment secondarily, and still a pretty benign inflation story. So I, I kind of like this market reaction, and maybe 
there's a little bit more um, discomfort to come as we go in toward the end of, well, as we get into Q4. Okay, I want to get into that a little bit more. But first, Santoli, want to get your thoughts on the fact that we uh, did end the day lower. We started the day higher. It looks like the 10-year Treasury yield uh, is touching a fresh high going back to 2007, post-Fed as well. We, we, we know we saw a move higher in two-year yields, yep. too. I mean, is that sort of what triggered increased selling in equities? It absolutely was all part of the same reaction, I would say. I mean, also, I'd want to get out there the disclaimers, which is that on net uh, reactions to Powell press conferences tilt negative, And the market is often very squirrely on Fed afternoon. And then you got to see the next day to see if there's a little bit of a rethink. All that being said, the equal weighted S&P was down a third of a percent today. The heavy selling did happen in the big index stocks uh, in the Nasdaq. And, yeah, we repriced the Fed path in the form of the two-year note yield going up. To 517. So that's a new high as well. So, yep, the higher for longer message filtering its way through. I don't think that means it's somehow this profound change for equities, but besides what we thought before, look, we, it still didn't answer any of the questions the market most, is most concerned with is can the economy and the consumer handle what's already happened in rates, what's happening in energy? Uh, and I think that's why the next move by the Fed, whether it's the remainder of this year or into next year, isn't as important as what we've already gotten and whether the market. Uh, can handle if they're if they're going to be going too far they probably already did yeah it sort of speaks to that steady drumbeat we've heard from Powell on data dependent we've got FedEx earnings out Frank Holland has the numbers Frank right now after a miss on revenue and a beat on EPS guidance was mixed FedEx lowering its revenue guidance, now seeing flat revenue growth compared to a prior outlook of flat to low single-digit growth. You can see shares are moving higher right now. The company also raised its EPS guidance, now 17 to 18.50 compared to the estimate of 17.50. In this report, CEO Raj Subramanian, he talked a bit about the company's transformation plan that began just about a year ago, saying in part, first quarter results improved primarily due to the execution of the company's drive program initiatives and continued focus on revenue quality. However, he added it was partially offset by ongoing demand weakness, something both FedEx and UPS have flagged. Uh, ground, basically their B2C uh, e-commerce business, that was really the strength of this quarter. FedEx also buying back $1.5 billion in stock for this fiscal year. So again, FedEx share is moving higher right now, higher of just about 3% right now. After a miss on revenue, a beat on EPS, they lowered revenue guidance for the year, but raised EPS guidance. The call starts at 5.30. Back over to you. Okay. Frank Holland, thank you. Let's get back to the Fed and our panel. But first, uh, Santoli, do you want to get your reaction to what we just heard from FedEx? I mean, shares are popping right now, despite what was a mixed report. Uh, speaks, I think, perhaps the EPS raise to, to the ongoing cost-cutting efforts. Well, that's exactly it. Uh, it's, it's a strategic management story as much as it is a macro story right now. So taking some heart in that, um, not a huge you know, buyback announcement, a billion and a half, but it's you know, a couple percent of market cap, so that doesn't hurt uh, either. We'll see if the, uh, if the reaction holds through the call. Okay. Let's get back, as I mentioned, to the Fed. Let's bring in our Steve Leisman, who is in the room for Chair Powell's news conference. Steve, break it down for us. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in the Zervos camp there uh, in terms of uh, the hawkishness of it. But I will add uh, what Krishna Guha called it was a bullish hawkishness, which is obviously mixing um, animal metaphors there. But I think it works in the sense that um, what they did is they did boost the growth forecast. That's good news. They lowered their unemployment forecast. That's good news. Um, but they kept 
uh, they, they, they got rid of a half a point of cuts there, and yet they kept the inflation rate at the same thing. So one way to read that is they're going to need to do more in, uh, with the funds rate in order to achieve the same result on inflation. Powell told me he didn't think that that meant more persistent inflation, but I think on the face of it, it actually does, that they do see it as more persistent. He said it's more about there being higher growth. And by the way, he also conceded perhaps it means that the neutral rate for the funds is higher. What does that mean for investors? It means you could probably count on higher rates for longer, even once we get past this inflation threat. Some of the members of the committee, uh, Morgan, ended up actually raising their estimate of the long run rate more towards 3% from the previous 2.5%. So there's a lot of stuff for people to think about. The only good news, I think, with this idea of the more hawkish outlook is Powell said several times he's going to go more slowly. So that means that if there is a mistake in the offing, well, perhaps you'll have a chance to take it back and not go uh, quite so far down the path. I am worried that if they do follow through with this forecast, they may, I guess what the phrase is, is snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. That, that if they maintain a rate that's too high for too long, the result could be the recession they've avoided so far and missing that soft landing. Hmm. Uh, Steve, thanks. So David Zervos, this just brings to mind for you. I'm trying to get to a bottom line for investors out there. Pressure, right? These these higher rates are, are supposed to be putting pressure on the economy to get things rational, you know, slower, but hopefully not painfully slow, right? But but this pressure, whether things go higher or just stay where they are for a long time, is going to have to play out, and it's going to play out probably longer than some market participants had expected a few months ago. Absolutely, John. And you know, I think there was a bit of a tortured discussion of that today with with Jay. He he talked about the neutral rate and the long run rate, and somehow made them different at times. I think it's a kind of I think he confused <laughs> things a little bit for me. Um, and and really talked about this higher neutral rate that Steve was alluding to. That some of the participants seem to be moving uh, in a direction that's higher. There seems to be a, a view coming through in part of the committee that they're going to have to keep real rates a little higher for a little longer just to make sure that they can get this inflation shock out of the system. And what scares them is not the inflation. It's not what's happened with inflation. I think they're quite happy with that. It's the growth and what that means around the risks of inflation going forward. The growth has surprised them. And I think it scares them a little. And that keeps them much more vigilant in 2024. And that's what they said in the SEP today. So, Barbara, if you have stronger growth, more resilient growth, and I, I realize the Fed didn't just up its GDP forecast for this year, but next year, too. Is that good for equities longer term? Yeah, I think it's very good. I mean, it isn't good, obviously, if inflation, you know, were to reverse and start creeping out. But if you notice, Powell also cut the inflation target for next year to 2.6 from 3.7. So, and he said, you know, Steve just mentioned about going slowly. He also said inflation will come down over time. So what I hear, he's, they're being patient. They don't want to overdo it. They're aware of the cumulative and lagged effects. And so they're going to be careful here and not derail this growth. So yes, strong growth, strong GDP is good for stocks because it's good for earnings, which is what stocks go up or down on. Hmm. So I still see this as John, a uh, bullish call. John, I, I just want to add one thing. I worry a little bit that, you know, when a guy comes in with a bad infection, the doctor goes, give him a thousand cc's of an antibiotic. And then as time goes by and 
uh, the patient gets better, you need less of that antibiotic. Here's the Fed effectively pouring it on. Their real rate, if you calculate that by using their inflation forecast for next year uh, and subtract that from their funds rate, is actually higher next year. So they're pouring more antibiotic on next year. And by the way, the Fed can't escape this real rate stuff. For 20 years, they've been telling me, forget the nominal rate, look at the real rate. That's the policy thing. Well, guess what? Their policy gets more restrictive next year. And I think they may have to do some explaining about that. But Steve, what to, to switch the metaphor around, what if hot inflation and continued growth is actually a fever for the patient, right, that they're trying to bring down? It's just not coming down fast enough or, you know, uh, do we go into I, I, alcohol I, bath I, mode or do we just, right? I mean, they're trying to keep treating that fever so it doesn't get out of control. I, I, I like what David was saying, and I think the issue is this. Powell has been saying for two years that bringing down inflation will require a period of below trend growth. And I'm sorry to leave your metaphor, John, but I'm not quite sure how to fit, how to fit that into my answer here. <laughs> but, but, but here's the thing. He has gotten the inflation coming down without the below trend growth. And I think what David is saying is they're just scared of that. That violates the way they think about the economy and the inflation dynamic. And the fact is the inflation dynamic has been of its own making. It's 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 its own thing right now. And it's largely resulting, I think, from those supply chains uh, clearing up. Uh, and, and the Fed just does not feel comfortable going out on that limb and saying, you know what, we can have stronger growth, we can have trend growth and inflation coming down. So, of course, David, I want to get your response to that, especially since you've been talking about positioning as an investor for a soft landing for quite a while before many other market participants have now played catch up in terms of revising their their S&P targets higher and, and the like. And one of the things you've pointed out ahead of this meeting today was the balance sheet and the role that's playing. Yeah, Morgan, we've been, you know, in a, a credit risk on mode. The high yield credit has been our story. You know that we've, we've mentioned that. And, you know, obviously, I think Jeff Goodluck was pushing that in the last uh, in the last segment and has been alongside of uh, a, a, a number of meetings. So, you know, we did not think that the recession story was really a, a viable story and that, you know, we were worried about equities because real rates were going to stay high for longer. But the credit story still is our story. I will bring the balance sheet in and you guys are all fiddling around with medical uh, metaphors and, and a bit of, uh, you know, antibiotics and, and, and drugs that are used to fix patients that are sick and maybe take away some of the medication. Remember, we still have a stock of QE in the system. The balance sheet as a percentage of GDP was 40 percent prior to starting QT and is still in the mid 30s. Prior to the global financial crisis, the balance sheet of the Fed was at 5%. That stock of QE, not the flow, the stock acts like a painkiller. We have a lot in our system. That QE is grease to the wheels. It also has some socialization structures with the losses that come in fixed income that the Fed takes, the market doesn't have to take. We've written a lot about that. And we think actually the stance of policy is a lot easier and the 525 basis points that they put in has been dulled down by the existence of QE, the stock of QE, and the failure or the desire by the central bank not to remove that QE before they raised rates. Hmm. And I think that plays a huge role in why this cycle 
just hasn't been as potent from a rate hike standpoint as many have been in the past. We could dive into that a lot deeper, but I saw you guys all going into the, the painkiller metaphor, so I'll throw <laughs> out that the stock of QE is a massive painkiller that's still in our system, right. and it nullifies a lot of the pain that comes from rate hikes. All right. David, Barbara, thanks for joining us on Fed Day. Your hair looks especially good, both of you. Steve Leisman, the dome is looking good. Mike Santoli, we'll see you in a bit. Meanwhile, KB Home Earnings are out. Steve Kovac has the numbers. Steve. There, John. Yeah, and shares are down about 2% despite beats on the top and bottom lines. Let me give you the results here. EPS coming in at $1.80 versus $1.43 expected. Revenues a beat as well, $1.59 billion versus the $1.48 billion expected. Uh, CEO saying in a release, though, you know, comparisons look pretty tough. They had a strong quarter in the year ago, uh, year ago quarter, which could be why we're seeing shares falling here. Uh, but the CEO also saying demand is strong and they're in a good position for the rest of the year, John. All right, uh, Steve, thanks. Mike Santoli, stock down about a percent, but granted, we haven't heard the call yet. That's just the initial reaction. What's your take on these numbers? Yeah, I haven't heard the call. I mean, I think really nothing to uh, to get too alarmed about in the numbers. It seemed like they were in the, in the zone of what you'd want to see, that you are pushing against, of course, new highs on the 10-year Treasury. You're, you're pushing against where mortgage rates are and general sentiment. Uh, NAHB survey really weak this uh, uh, past couple of days. So, you know, we'll have to see how that all uh, shakes out after we know maybe a little more about what they're seeing in current customer traffic and order trends. Yeah, that could mean higher mortgage rates for longer and maybe higher incentives, which eventually might get painful. Mike Santoli, thank you. When we come back, former Council of Economic Advisors Chair Jason Furman and former Evercore ISI Vice Chair Krishna Guha are going to give us their first thoughts on today's Fed decision. Plus, we'll tell you the one factor that Jeffrey Gunlock said could cause the Fed to hike again. And we will have much more on today's After Hours action, including what one longtime industry watcher wants to hear from FedEx management on the earnings call. Overtime is back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. The IPO market coming to life this week, kind of, with the second listing in as many days. Clavio finishing its first session higher, but off its best levels after the marketing automation firm priced above its range at 30 bucks a share. And check out Instacart, which jumped double digits yesterday, but pulled back sharply today, briefly dipping below that $30 IPO price before closing just above it. Meanwhile, Arm pulled back today, getting nearer to that $51 listing price and way down from where it was trading 
on that first day of trade and since. Morgan, uh, I was in San Jose, part of Silicon Valley, for a little less than 48 hours. I met with two CEOs in particular, a few, but two CEOs who are perhaps looking to go public within the next 12 months. And they're very closely watching the market reaction to this. It doesn't mean they will, but it's kind of like warming up on the sidelines, mm. right? Not, not quite throwing on the field, but like warming up on the sidelines. As long as things stay stable, as long as the market doesn't fall apart, it sounds like people want to get in. Yeah, we heard something similar from Gary Tan of Y Combinator yesterday, too. This idea that maybe, in fact, this, this IPO window is opening up uh, and everybody is watching this very closely. I saw one market note today saying something like $74 billion of pending IPO deals that are in the pipeline. Uh, so certainly this does seem like a litmus test, but it's also key, I think, to remember that you know, there's there's winners and losers on every side of this, because what we've seen is, uh, you know, higher prices, high, you know, high offerings that saw a lot of demand. The IPO price is higher, an initial pop. But then if you jumped in after it started trading on some of these names, uh, maybe you're not seeing this as positively as the companies that took that money when they when they off the table, when they, uh, you know, went public. Yeah. Not if you didn't jump right out. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, turning back to the Fed, the double line capitals and Jeffrey Gunlock on our air last hour responding to today's news conference. Here's what he had to say about the potential for another rate hike. Take a listen. I think the probability of rate hikes is higher than what I thought before this oil spike happened. The oil spike is really going to be problematic. We already know that the base effects, the roll off of the CPI is, uh, is, is going to lead to, very likely, inflation going back up. All right, let's bring in former Council of Economic Advisors Chair Jason Furman and Evercore ISI Vice Chairman Krishna Guha. Good to have you both on. Uh, Jason, I'm going to start with you. Your reaction to those comments from Gunlock as we have seen energy prices move higher. We do have D.C. dysfunction. We do have a UAW strike and, and uh, labor agreements that are that are yielding higher wages for workers in this country. How does the Fed navigate all this? Look, I think the Fed right now is in or mode on rate hikes. If we get higher inflation, and that's core inflation, they're going to look through the oil stuff, um, then you get higher rates. Or if we get, you know, much higher growth or lower unemployment, then you also get rate hikes. The reason they were higher for longer in today's dots wasn't that they were more worried about inflation. It was the other half. They were less worried about unemployment. That gives them a little bit more room um, to raise uh, rates. Yeah, it's not so much that inflation is necessarily going to move higher, but that growth is stronger uh, than had been anticipated as well. So, Krishna, it takes us to Steve Leisman gave a shout out to your to your note. Uh, and I, I do want to get straight to that. This idea of bullish hawkish from the Fed and from Powell today. So that's right. I mean, as far as the rate outlook goes, uh, rates high for longer. So that's hawkish. But why? Because they're pretty built up on the economy. Uh, you know, they are extrapolating forward the recent surprise strength that we've seen in the economy. And they are embracing a soft landing story. You know, the economics of this is pretty dazzling, right? They do believe that with uh, rates that only come down very gradually, we can get inflation back towards target without unemployment ever going above 4.1%. Now, if you'd said that to a lot of mainstream macroeconomists 
Uh, even six or 12 months ago, they would have looked at you like you were probably crazy. Huh. So Jason Furman, what does this mean? What does the setup mean for Q4? Really important uh, consumer-driven quarter. We're going to be there in two weeks, in the quarter anyway. Amazon's saying they're going to hire a quarter million people getting ready for that. And, and we've got strikes happening now in some pretty big industries. What needs to happen in Q4 for the economy to, to keep threading this needle? Look, first of all, the FOMC forecasts seem to implicitly be assuming um, a decent amount of slowdown um, in Q4. They don't give us their quarterly numbers. They said for the year growth would be 2.1. Given what we know about Q3, which is going to be about 3%, that probably means about 1% um, in Q4. So they do see a bit of a slowdown there. And you see that also from the unemployment rate rising, um, not nearly as much as they used to think it was going to rise, but they still have a rise um, penciled in for next year. Um, in order for us to have positive growth in Q4, which, by the way, would certainly be my forecast for Q4, it's going to require at least some continued strength by consumers and that to be joined by you know, a reversal of the declines in business investment that we saw you know, at least up through the middle of this year. Krishna, are you expecting the same kind of strong Q4? I would certainly expect Q4 to be positive. I mean, there are a whole bunch of things that uh, could interrupt the data in the near term. You know, Powell talked about some of these things in the press conference. The auto workers strike, a possible government shutdown, spillovers, a resumption of student loan repayments. But the underlying trajectory of growth does seem strong. And that, of course, is why the Fed is saying, OK, look, looks like we are maybe going to get that soft landing with only a moderate deceleration in growth, only a slight increase in unemployment. But if we do get that, don't expect early big rate cuts. Jason, we know it can take a while for all of these rate hikes that we've seen over the past year and a half to work their way through the economy and have full effect. When do we know? When can when can the Fed or the markets actually claim victory and say a soft landing has been achieved? Uh, I think it's going to be a while before we can be at all clear um, and declare victory. I also think the degree to which those monetary policy lags are long and variable is greatly overstated. Monetary policy works through a number of channels. One is through the stock market. Well, the stock market's been going up lately, not down. Another is through the dollar. Uh, the dollar is going down lately, not up. Another is through mortgage rates. Most of the increase in mortgage rates happened more than a year ago. There's been another round of it lately. But a lot of what's happened in monetary policy, I think, has already worked their way through the system. What needs to bring inflation down now is less lagged monetary policy um, and more just the underlying dynamics of an economy that I think has room for positive growth, but certainly less room for positive growth than it had over the last um, two years or so. So, Krishna, I just jump in and agree and yeah, disagree in part with what Jason's just said there. Go ahead. Yeah, so I, I think there's, as always, a lot of insight to what Jason says, but I would flag up the big move we've seen recently in the 10 year yield higher that's, of course, pulled mortgage rates and uh, corporate rates higher. And a strong dollar background as part of that as well. I actually think there's substantial additional tightening that still has its, uh, to work its way through the system. More coming from that move in the long end, which is very recent. And I think there's also some suggestion 
the lags from financial conditions to the economy might even be a bit longer, not shorter this time around. Why? Because everybody locked in so much low cost fixed rate financing uh, during the low rate period. It takes time for that to roll off. It takes time, therefore, for the effect of this level of rates to bite on the economy. Yeah, uh, to, to your point, the 10 year at just about 4.4 and the 30 year a little higher. Uh, Krishna, Jason, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, shipping industry expert Donald Broughton weighs in on results from FedEx and breaks down the impact on the industry from the UPS labor disputes and the yellow bankruptcy. And as we head to break, take a look of one of take a look at one of today's biggest winners. It's Textron soaring on news of a major order of up to 1,500 business jets from NetJets. That stock closing higher by just under 5%. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Overtime. FedEx jumping up 4% right now after giving strong full-year earnings guidance, uh, EPS guidance, that is. For the latest quarter, earnings per share topped estimates, but revenues were light. UPS is also moving up in sympathy here in Overtime. Joining us now is Broughton Capital Managing Partner Donald Broughton. Donald, it's great to have you on. Uh, it, it does seem like it was a bit of a mixed quarter, and there were very high expectations going into this print. Why is the stock trading up as much as it is? Well, let's, let's look at a couple of things that are happening. First of all, as you and I have talked about for years now, this this company, I think, is their stock is more gamed than just about anything else out there because it's it reports when no one else reports. It's seen as a bellwether for good reason. And so it tends to uh, move prior to the announcement, and uh, that's already, already been priced in. You know, this was a $270 stock just a month ago, and it's fallen back to as low as 250. Um, and uh, so there's maybe a little bit of a relief rally here. Good results, but uh, uh, any lightness uh, that you're uh, pointing to, I think has already long well been priced into the stock. Gotcha. Okay, a lot of chatter ahead of this print too about the yellow bankruptcy, how that was gonna affect freight, the freight business or FedEx. And then of course, the UPS labor uh, drama that we talked about after the last FedEx earnings uh, and market share and what that was going to mean. How meaningful have both of those been to, to this to this result? How permanent are they going to be? Well, they're, they're both meaningful. First of all, let's kind of just review the tape. Uh, a year ago, this is $145 stock. And I know you and I began talking about how this the, the Teamster contract was going to be issued and everyone seemed to ignore it up until just the last minute and then suddenly they became manic about it and uh, I think they swung the opposite direction after not paying attention to it suddenly they became 
overly optimistic about it. Now, when you look at these actual results, or at least what we've been able to look at so far, it appears that they really did gain market share. They really did gain market share at higher yields and um, deal another serious blow to, to, the, to UPS's uh, ground business. Uh, and I think that'll be a sustainable. People that have sh shifted volume over to them will continue to use them. You don't just uh, switch and then switch back. Okay. Yellow, on the other hand, is another matter. Um, uh, whatever happens in the bankruptcy court, uh, even if they get triple the price for the assets, uh, there will be nothing left for the common shareholder. Um, the, so, the, Donald, how yeah. much should investors in FedEx and maybe its peer group think about the potential government shutdown? Does it matter at all? Not, not really. Not, not unless it lasts a very, very long time to the point it, it affects everything in the economy. Um, it's really not. Um, it's really not the business they're in. They're in the business of making uh, high-value, low-density goods move to where they need to be to make uh, the tech economy and, and uh, the high-end uh, part of our economy move, not not uh, cater to the government. Right yeah. Now. Well, so so many forces out there that could uh, throw a monkey wrench. I just wondered. Yes. Donald, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Let's get a CNBC News update with Contessa Brewer. Contessa. John, the Biden administration is canceling nearly $37 million in student debt. That relief will go to 1,200 former students who had attended the University of Phoenix between 2012 and 2014. We have video. It's just not rolling. They needed to apply for borrower defense discharges. That's a legal ground taken against schools that engage in misconduct. The Education Department said today the university deceived prospective students with false ads that misled them about job prospects. Free COVID tests coming back next week. The Department of Health and Human Services once again will open requests for four free tests from the government that can be delivered to homes free of charge. COVID cases are, of course, on the rise in the U.S., and many of those original tests have passed their expiration dates. Well, it looks like there is a ravenous appetite for banning books, and they are being challenged at historic rates. The American Library Association found that since January this year, there have been 695 attempts to censor library materials or services across the country. That's a 20% increase from the year before. You know, Isaac Asimov said... Any book worth banning is a book worth reading. Guys? All right. Get your library cards ready. Contessa Brewer, thank you. Up next, after the break, Bank of America says a long-term trend in worker productivity could be about to reverse. Mike Santoli will break down the charts next. And we are counting down to KB Home's earnings call, which kicks off at the top of the hour. We're going to talk to an analyst about the Home Builders quarter and what he wants to hear from management when overtime returns. Welcome back to Overtime. Bank of America raising its S&P 500 target today, pointing out one interesting labor trend. Our Mike Santoli is here with his market dashboard, and he has taken a look at that. Mike. Yes, Morgan. In this case, it's a very long-running trend in uh, worker productivity, or specifically S&P 500 company revenue per worker. This goes all the way back to the mid-'80s. It's inflation-adjusted, just so you can get an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. So what you see here is that whole 90s, Productivity revolution, use of technology, rolling restructurings among very large companies did increase this. So that's a, a one measure of public company 
productivity going higher in a steady way. It's been more or less flatlining on a point-to-point -point basis since about the year 2000, since the peak of that former tech investment bubble. Now, there's another element happening here, which is the type of companies that dominate the S&P 500 was becoming more technology and growth-oriented. But the case that B of A is trying to make is that inflation could act as a catalyst to restart worker productivity as well, of course, as AI and other technologies from this point on, which would justify uh, higher equity valuations relative to bond yields, which was the case back in the 80s and 90s. You know, everyone's very alarmed, including Jeffrey Gunlock last hour, about the valuation of stocks compared to four plus percent treasury yields. Well, that was the norm back in the 80s and 90s to have a very similar spread between those two things. One of those reasons, perhaps, is that we did have uh, steady productivity growth back then. So it's not just a fashion throwback to the 90s. I mean, productivity, right. if you see increased productivity, that would actually be a good thing for the Fed's fight against inflation in the sense that it could help right size or ease the tightness of the labor market too, right? Absolutely. It's kind of an escape hatch from, you know, that fix that you might otherwise be in where you have to tighten too much to choke off growth in the economy. That was really, to me, the signature uh, move that Greenspan made that won him the reputation of being the maestro, which was in the mid-90s. He eased back after a tightening campaign in 1996 and sort of allowed the economy to become more productive without anticipating a rise in inflation. So unemployment kept going down below levels uh, that we thought before would have sparked inflation. So we don't know if we're going to get a rerun of that, but at least it's one of those possibilities that we could uh, see some of those factors work through. I like Folks that he hope. referenced maestro. Uh, because, yes. as we know, Mike Santoli is our own market maestro. He's the maestro of the Magna Doodle. There's a movie coming out for an entirely different maestro as well, right? So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use that for another time. Bradley Cooper. <laughs> All right. Mike, thank you. Enterprise software company ServiceNow just releasing an expanded platform featuring new AI tools. Up next, CEO Bill McDermott on how much revenue he thinks that could generate. We'll be right back. The AI announcements just keep coming. Today is from ServiceNow, the fast-growing enterprise software player. This is the launch CEO Bill McDermott talked about at earnings in late July. And this one is important for investors to track because while there's a lot of jawboning out there about AI's potential to drive revenue, Salesforce and Oracle have their conferences this month, ServiceNow is leading the charge in releasing industry-specific AI capabilities. So if enterprise AI adoption does ramp the way some are hoping, this company could be an early indicator. I spoke with McDermott about how much spending customers will dedicate to IT. But if you just look at the independent research companies like IDC, for example, they have essentially said that IT spend, the growth rate will actually double next year. So from a growth rate, which is traditional of three and a half percent, 2024 will go to at least seven percent. And some people think even more because they're believing that many GNA functions will actually be budget uh, negative to fund and fuel the AI revolution. But if you think about platform as a service, the forecast for 2023 was 30%, and software as a service was 17% in 2023. In 2024, it's projected that that will go up substantially. So in our case, we are a platform, and we are a SaaS market leader, and IT spending is clearly going up, especially in AI, which gives us a bull case. When does it hit? 
I mean, for us, I'm expecting it to be earlier than others because we're actually launching uh, Vancouver, as you know, right now. And um, we'll be making even more releases in the fourth quarter. And in the first quarter of next year, we have our Washington release, which is massive new product introduction and innovation into the market. So I think, you know, you're going to start to see it late 2023. But in 2024, I'm expecting a very large year. I also asked Bill how he expects AI adoption to play out across different geographic regions. I believe Europe is going to be a big platform year in 2024 and beyond. And obviously, Asia um, and markets in Asia now have to adapt to the cloud, have to buy into the cloud and capture this great tailwind. Because you know what? This isn't just like any new product introduction. This is like literally transforming your company. I mean, if you're an insurance company, you know, let's completely rethink the underwriting process. If you're a healthcare company, let's completely rethink how we care for patients. And instead of spending all of our time putting information into a system, let the system do the work so you can spend time with the patients. And if you're caring for a customer, you know, no longer do you have to be keyboarding information into a computer? That computer is there now with AI to serve you so you can serve your customers. So I think this is a revolution. It'll be global. U.S. is first mover. Europe is right there. But Asia's coming on strong. Morgan, if he's right, Mike Santoli's next revenue per employee chart will tick I, off. I was having the same exact thought. I was <laughs> like, this is, this is the productivity conversation right here. I mean, I think also it's key to this, and we've seen it even in the run-up you know, in ServiceNow stock up 47% since the start of the year is the companies that are investing versus the companies that are now monetizing. And it sounds like he's more in the latter camp or ServiceNow is more in the latter camp. Uh, The valuation reflects some of those expectations, Mm -hmm. though. So these next couple quarters, three for some of these companies, it's really going to have to get proven out and put Salesforce in that category, too. Can they actually get that growth done that they're trying to drum up in an enterprise that had been really queasy at the beginning of the year and is now ramping back up? All right. Great stuff. We're just minutes away from earnings calls from FedEx and KB Home. We have an analyst with reaction to the home builders results when overtime returns. Welcome back in overtime. FedEx shares up more than five and a half percent after cost cuts and a strong full year profit outlook. KB Home under pressure, down about three percent despite an earnings beat. Up next, a top home builder analyst is going to tell us what he wants to hear from KB executives when their call kicks off in just a few minutes. We'll be right back. Let's get another check on KB Home down. A little more than 2.5%, despite topping estimates in the top and bottom lines. Joining us now is Seaport Senior Analyst Ken Zener. Uh, Ken, welcome. So, uh, full-year uh, housing revenue more than expected, even though houses are going to sell for less than expected, they're saying. So, if rates, interest rates are staying higher for longer, can KB Home keep subsidizing that to drive its business, even with prices coming down? I think so for the industry in general. I mean, they are offering mortgage buy-downs. Thanks for having me on. You know, that do cost them a couple hundred basis points of gross margin, but that is creating the demand uh, for them. So the key question for investors on KBH's call and for the home builders is, are they going to be growing and what it's going to cost them in terms of 
returns, specifically gross margins. And I think that'll be a big focus on the call today. At what point do homeowners who don't want to move have to move, either because of a job change or something, even if rates are staying high? Right. I mean, death, divorce, uh, job relocation tend to be the base dynamics for housing uh, turnover, which is quite low. Uh, and it's still staying low at that $4 million. We do expect existing inventory to remain low and existing sales, which when in our thesis, housing may not repeat, but it rhymes. Look, starting in the 1962 period, we do see higher rate periods, which we're in, secularly, leading to low inventory. Builders traditionally gain share as a percent of what's for sale, and public builders specifically gain share using their balance sheet and mortgage buy-down. So I think that tailwind will be benefiting KB and other public home builders. So would you buy KB right now coming off of this print, or, or would you prefer to put your money to work somewhere else? Well, I think, you know, KB investors will want to hear about the gross margin guidance. Uh, the reason they beat in the quarter and raised the full-year closing units is they are pivoting a little bit to pre-construction units versus their traditional build-to-order, and I think that's okay. Uh, I would say Lennar, who reported last week, is our top pick right now as it moves towards a capital light model where EPS equals cash flow. Okay. Um, so there's another thing that's been getting signaled and flagged uh, among some of the home builders, and that's the fact that not only do you have high construction costs, you have high rates, but also land is becoming more scarce. Is that going to be a concern for KB Home, too? Land scarcity, I would say, is not an issue given the builder's own land supply that's available. You know, you might see what's actually available for development there for sale impacting community count. Uh, I think we saw that a little with KBH, if I'm not mistaken. That's simply because they're selling faster. Clearly, land costs are going up. That's part of inflation. And the broader picture is real estate historically is an inflation hedge. So I think it'll all work out within their relative market share gains in the new construction industry. Okay. Ken Zener, thanks for joining us. Shares of KB Home down about 2.5% right you. now in after hours trading. So we're going to keep an eye on that. Also FedEx. Um, one of the things FedEx puts out in its earnings call is their global economic outlook too, since they move so many goods across so many parts of the world. China's a big market, and, and the trade in and out of China, cross-border trade for China for FedEx. So that's going to be key, too, at a time where investors are trying to parse uh, the rebound and the economic growth prospects there. Yeah, and the, the uncertainty in China. I'll be interested to, to see what they have to say. Uh, something I brought back from the West Coast, a conversation with Supermicro. I want to share that with you later this week, but I don't know if you remember, they're a big um, high-performance computing Maker. So all these AI chips, they're building them into these rack systems, and they've been selling like crazy. The stock's been way up over the past year. But can that continue? It's a continuation of the AI conversation, but not so much on the software end. All that software has got to run on something. So kind of the, the demand for both, they depend on each other. So it gets back to the, what is it, picks and shovels part of the conversation. It had been a stealth mover and then kind of exploded, to your point, in terms of the, the earnings we saw. Yeah. Uh, it's back down again. So, you know, should people get in or not? Uh, rare conversation with the CEO about what he sees coming next. And, uh, you know, this IPO market, of course, we're going to continue to track that. We're going to continue to track that. Uh, major averages finished the day lower. That was despite starting the day with gains. And, of course, this was all on the heels of the Fed. That's going to do it for us here at Overtime. Fast Money starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.